Let's do it. Genesis chapter 47. We are going to start in verse 13, uh, which is going to be, so we're going to cover the second half of Genesis chapter 47 this morning. And uh, we are coming up on the end of the story here. Spoiler alert, there's only 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, so we're getting close to the end here. We only got a couple more weeks that we will be here. And um, one of the interesting things is, uh, it's been an incredible, incredible story. Like, but the ending is going to be a little bit different than we're accustomed to, right? If you just kind of knew this story going in and, and didn't have kind of the whole biblical knowledge, if you were just like, oh, okay, so this family and there was like fighting and then one of them hated a younger brother and so they sold him into slavery and then he worked his way up rags to riches in Egypt and he becomes second in command over the entire country of Egypt, which at the time was the most powerful nation, biggest empire in the world. And then there was a huge famine but it was okay because God had given this young man a vision to save his family from this famine. And, you know, if you had heard all of that, you'd be like, oh my gosh. And then finally the family's reunited and he says, come down, live with me, family. This will be great. We can, we can live in, in the land of Goshen. It's got plenty of food, plenty of water. Our livestock will thrive. And, and if this was like a Disney movie, then the credits would roll and it'd say happily ever after. And we would all go, oh, that was great. It was really hard. It was touch and go there for a minute. It was really scary, but we came through the difficulty and we made it to the other side and then we rode off into the sunset. But that's not what happens in the Bible, which is good because that's not what happens in real life. Is there anybody who rode off into the sunset in real life? Nobody did, right? There's always something else that happened afterwards. We have this idea that, oh, this is all going to be fixed. This is all like, that's not... I'm going to, hopefully my wife doesn't get mad at me for this, but uh, one of the things that my wife got so mad about uh, after we were married for a little bit was the portrayal of uh, people who are in love on movies. Because they would like snuggle up like on the beach and then they'd like pan out and they'd be like, they had slept there all night, like on a blanket, like cuddling close to one another. And the reality is nothing close to that, right? You're like, you're laying on my arm. I can't feel my fingers. And they're like, your hair's in my face. And it's like, I'm too hot. And like, like nobody does that. And so it's like not reality. And what happens is sometimes Christians fall into this idea that what God is going to provide for you is not going to be reality. And so we're going to get not necessarily reality check, but we're going to see the end of the story here in Genesis chapter 47. And I, I want to point that out because sometimes we think that God is like the Christian message is God's going to fix all your problems and make everything in your life better. And that is a byproduct of what he does, but it doesn't mean he's going to make every hard thing go away completely. This story is not a story about people who found out the secret to an easy life. The Bible tells the story of the people who found hope in the middle of a difficult life. That's the story that we have in front of us. So, yes, the family's re reunited. Yes, they are saved from starvation. Yes, they are set up for a future and given a hope. But no, the famine is not over. So look at what happened starting in verse 13. It says, there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe so that, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. 
So the famine didn't go away. God saved these people. God gave them an incredible land to live in. God gave them this hope and security because they're now living on the Nile River. And God provided for them and, and made known to them in many incredible ways that he was with them and he was looking out for them. But the famine didn't go away. The famine didn't stop. There's still a world that is struggling to even eat at this moment. And I point that out because sometimes people come to God because they think God is going to solve all their problems. And it's a surprise to them that in the course of following God and doing what he calls them to do, that they still find difficulty. It's a surprise to them that they step out in faith and obedience and they have that rush of adrenaline because they're like, I'm finally doing what I know God has called me to do. But there's still a famine. It's still hard. It's still difficult. I know this well, maybe it's a new idea to you. Maybe it's not. But let me just share this because the Bible is pretty clear about this. Life is hard. Like being married is hard. Raising kids is hard. Getting older is hard. Like doing what God wants you to do is hard. Making good decisions is not easy. Life is just hard for everybody. And I point that out because so many people are surprised when things are difficult. So many people become reactive and uncertain when the road gets hard. And just so you know, the road is hard for everybody. Life is difficult for every single person on the planet. Think about this story here. This family has been through a lot of difficult circumstances, many of them self-inflicted. And when we get to Genesis 47, yes, we have seen God be faithful. Yes, we have seen him save them. Yes, we have seen him protect them. But there's still a famine. And if you remember from last week, they are still, well, two weeks ago because of the smoke, but they are still considered an abomination by all the people that they live around. Now, this will be this, this message, this idea that life is still hard, even though God loves you and has given you a future and a hope, it'll be especially helpful for two different groups of people. The first is the group of people that thinks anytime they run into something hard, that that is somehow uh, a sign that they're doing it wrong. Anybody fall into that? Like you walk out and your tire's flat and you're like, oh man, I must not have prayed enough today. There's, there's, a, there's a group of people out here. You're probably too timid to raise your hand because you don't want people to look at you. But there's a bunch of people out here that are like, oh my gosh, the hard things in my life are because I'm not doing it right. And let me tell you, that's not true. The hard things in your life are because of sin. It's ruined everything. There's another group of people that will find this helpful because they don't expect difficulty. And so what happens is, Sometimes as Christians, we don't expect difficulty when we should expect difficulty. And so not only is life difficult, but it's a surprise to us. So the difficulty is compounded because we didn't see it coming. We're like, why is this so hard? And so the Bible tells us that we should expect difficulty in this life. Not that we're all pessimists. We're not like Eeyore running around going, oh my gosh, life is hard. But we aren't surprised when it happens either. We aren't surprised that as you drove to church this morning, you fought with your wife. We aren't surprised that, you know, when you went out to your car, something wasn't right. Maybe it got broken into. We aren't surprised that people were calling and complaining and giving you bad news. We aren't surprised. Like, if you're one of those small group leaders that Ben pointed out, like, hey, moms, I'm telling you this day is coming. Your kids are going to have an absolute meltdown for 36 hours prior to group. And then your husband's going to come home and be like, get the house ready. People are coming over in 20 minutes. And you're going to be like... Are you kidding me? Like that day's coming. I promise you. And I'm sorry it has to be so hard. I wish I could wave a pixie wand over it and we could just make it all go away. But that's not the reality. 
And like I said at the beginning of this, the Bible doesn't tell a story of a people who God took all the difficulty out of their life, but the Bible does tell the story of the people who found hope in the middle of the difficulty. And so what we see here is that the famine is still raging. And it's entirely possible that you could trust God and do what he calls you to do and doing exactly what he wants you to be doing and parts of your life are still really hard. There's still a famine going on. There's still COVID or your job is still uncertain. That does not mean that God has left you, forsaken you, or doesn't know what he's doing in your life. And so look at verse 14. It says, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan and in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. And he supplied them with the food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that all our money is spent, and the herds and the livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us our land for food, and we will, with our land, be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed, that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph brought all the land of Egypt from Pharaoh for all the Egyptians sold their fields because their famine was severe on them. And the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. And only the land of the priest did he not buy. For the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and he lived on the allowance that Pharaoh had given them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth of the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. All right, now this is, I know that was a long chunk, but this story is super interesting because I want you to picture yourself in Egypt back in those days. And I want you to picture yourself in like your perfect life. Maybe you have a big house. Maybe it's got a great view. Maybe it's on the fancy, nice street in town. Maybe everybody is jealous because you have this incredible place to live, right? And so you live there and you're doing pretty good in life. You're pretty comfortable and you walk down to the market one day. And you get to the market and you go to buy meat from the guy you always buy meat from and the price is doubled. You're like, well, what's going on here, man? Like, I mean, the meat was cheap and now it's not cheap. What, what happened? And he goes, well, you know, we didn't have very much rain this year. And so the crops didn't grow very well. And so the animals, lots of them didn't survive because there wasn't much to eat. And then the ones that did survive were real skinny. So, you know, meat's expensive this year. You know, okay, so you buy some meat. And you keep doing that. You buy expensive meat for a while. And then pretty soon you go down there and there's no meat at all. You can't even buy meat. The guy who has meat, oh, we don't have any meat. Who's got meat? I don't. Well, maybe that guy over there has meat, but I don't think so. It looks like everybody's out of meat. So then you go to buy grain. And the grain price is skyrocketed because everyone who's trying to buy meat's now trying to buy grain. And it's all gone too. And now you're sitting there with a giant house 
the envy of all the land of Egypt. You got your comfortable life, your nice possessions, and none of it matters because you're hungry. And who cares what street you live on or how big your house is or how many square footage or if you have the white picket fence or what kind of car you drive if you can't eat, right? And so what these people start to do is they start to sell their possessions. But nobody wants their possessions because they all want food. Like, hey, I got this Range Rover. You can have it for 20 bucks. I don't want your Range Rover. I want to eat, right? And so now this, this and it keeps snowballing and snowballing and snowballing until they sell every single thing they have, even their land and their property and their own lives. They say, you, if, give us food to eat and we'll be your servants. And that's where every single one of them end up. And this is what happens. Literally three years in, basically the entire nation has sold everything they own to get enough food to survive. And all those illusions of comfort and control are completely gone. And here's the picture. Here's the picture I want you to see. The people whose hope is in things, their hope and life is devastated in this moment. And the people whose hope is in God still have hope. Do you see that? The people who were like, oh, I got all this stuff and I have, I'm comfortable and all that. Like, all of a sudden it's gone. In a moment, in a couple years, it's all taken away from them. But the people who hope in God still have hope. Have you ever watched somebody do something really dangerous? And you're like thinking to yourself, like, do they know how dangerous that is? That's really stupid. Anybody ever watch that happen? Hey, you're watching, like... If it's really dangerous, I just can't look. Does anybody else do that? Like those kids that are like tight roping on like buildings and stuff. I'm like, I'm just not, I can't do it. Right? You just, there's these moments in life where you start to do something that you don't know is dangerous. And the people around you are looking on and they're going, uh, that's really dangerous. Uh, I remember when I lived in Australia, we had a professional spear fisherman in our uh, church. And his name was Lance. He was a great guy. And uh, Lance is like, oh, mate, you want to go spear fishing? And I was like, sure. So we, uh, we go to go spear fishing. And I was a poor college student. So I didn't want to buy flippers because like fins that you wear when you snorkel, uh, because those are like 30 or 40 bucks. And I was like, nah, I could eat. And so I didn't. I just had a mask and a snorkel and a wetsuit, which the wetsuit like took all my money. Uh, and so I didn't get the flippers. And I was like, I'll be fine. I'll just swim. And so I grew up in Washington. Like we don't go in the ocean. We just look at it. We like go to Haystack Rock. And we're like, oh, that's beautiful. It's too cold on my feet. I'm going back in. Right. So we don't actually get in the ocean. Uh, we just look at it. And when you go to Australia, they get in the ocean. So I got in the ocean and I'm snorkeling around. And I had no idea that the shallow part of the ocean is the the most dangerous part. I'm just like looking at the reef and stuff and I was like, yeah, this is great. And I'm swimming around and I'm like, I'm great. And then I get too shallow over the top of the reef. And what happens when you get too shallow in the ocean is the waves start to break, right? The white part crashes over. So the, the first wave crashes on my snorkel and I start to breathe in water and I'm like, hur, 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 and I start to choke and I'm like, I got to get out of here. But because I never bought fins, I don't have enough power to swim against the break. So I'm trying to swim and I was like, this is not working. So my only option was to go in where the reef got shallower. So I go into where the reef got shallower and now the reef is like, I'm getting rolled by the waves and the reef is just cutting me up. 
and and like the long end to the story is I end up looking like I came out of a horror movie just slashes all over my arms and legs and back and I still have the wetsuit that has holes all over in it because I was too stupid to buy fins when I went snorkeling and didn't know you should stay out of the shallow part over the reef when you get in the ocean and my buddy Lance, he was like, I would have told you that. If I would have seen you over there, I would have yelled, oh, I might get out of there. Like, he would have known if he would have seen me. And what happens is, in this story, there's all these people who have trusted in things, who have bought into the lie of materialism, and they have no idea how dangerous it is until the famine hits. And if coronavirus has taught us anything, it should have taught us this. That all that stuff that we think life is about, that some people say life is about, all the material things, it can be gone like that. Has anybody else been awakened to how quickly it all can change? How, how quickly your job can be gone? How quickly your savings can hit the bottom? How quickly your retirement can go through the floor? Like, this has, like, if this hasn't taught us anything, and that's exactly what's happening to these people here. It all exposes this idea that life being about things is so fragile. The things you own, the things you do, the things you enjoy, it's all so fragile. It could be taken from you in a moment. None of you expected six months ago that life would look like this, that all your kids' sports would be canceled, that everyone would be a homeschooler, right? I've been, I went to public school, so I've been making fun of homeschoolers basically my entire ministry, and now they're all like, who's laughing now, bro? Everybody's a homeschooler, right? This, like, it all changed in an instant. And we never saw it coming. And I bring this up because here's what I know about you. You are like me, and both me and you are great at convincing ourselves we're in control. We are great at convincing ourselves. We got a hand. I could do this. I'm not wrong. If I was wrong, I'd know about it. I'm doing okay. And yet, the Word of God gives us a picture of some people that are exposed in their foolishness. They're doing something incredibly dangerous, and they need to be told, Hey, that's stupid. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be trusting in those things. It can be taken from you in a moment. And that's what happens here. And sometimes the famine and the hardship and the difficulty actually remind us just how little control we really have. And look at the difference between the people at the end of this passage. Both people are going through a famine. Both people are living in incredible uncertainty. Both are living through extremely difficult circumstances. But Jacob and Joseph and their family, because they trusted God, are thriving and multiplying in the moment. And on the other side of it, the Egyptians are just scratching to survive because they trusted in the wrong things. And then look at verse 23. It says, Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please the Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made a statue concerning the land, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So this is old dad Jacob. He was 100 and 
37 when he came here. He's 17 more years in Egypt. So the days of Jacob and the years of his life were 147 years. So he's 130 when he came. And when the time drew near that Israel, that's Jacob, he has two names, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed upon the head of his bed. So Jacob's life is about to come to an end. And Joseph is about to pass away in a pretty, uh, pretty actually comfortable state of life. And if you take a second and reflect back on the past 150 years of our story, I think that you will recognize that even though there were ups and downs in the life of Jacob, he did what God wanted him to do. He was mostly trying to do what God wanted him to do. And as a pastor, this is the dividing line that I see in the lives of people. And it's just from observation. Like I've just been doing this long enough to see how people's lives turned out. But the people who really want to do what God wants them to do are the people that end up with a great life. The, the other side of that are the people who don't really want to do what God wants to do. Or another way to say it was they're perfectly comfortable doing something other than what God's called them to do. Like, yeah, I should be doing that, but eh, nobody's perfect. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be doing this. My life should probably not look like this. I should probably have something. And that is such a dangerous place to be. It should be a giant red flag. Jesus said it like this. I think it summarizes not only Jacob's life pretty well, but can be <laughs> helpful to us. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, not seek first your own comfort, not seek first your own idea of success, seek first what makes sense to you, but seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the things that are from God. Seek first the things that are honoring to God. Seek first the things that are of his kingdom. They are a part of the plan he has for your life. And then Jesus says this, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. If you look at the end of Jacob's life, this is what we see. We end up and we see Jacob as a man who has all of these comforts, but it didn't come because he sought the comforts. It came because he sought what God called him to do. There's an interesting thing that happens when we hear this, people get a little sideways because they hear Jesus say that and they see a guy like Jacob end up pretty comfortable in life and they think that the way to get money and power and success is to seek the kingdom. And that's not what happens. When you seek the kingdom, all of a sudden you are exposed to how fraudulent the money and success and comfort really are. You're like, oh my gosh, those people that have all the comfort and the money, like they're not that happy. They're not okay. They're not joyous and gracious and patient. It's very common to hear Jesus say, seek first the kingdom of God and think to yourself, well, first is pretty high. What if I seek top 10, the kingdom of God? What if it's like in the top 10? That's good, right? Top five? I seek top five, the kingdom of God. Like it's not behind very many things. It's like there's four things in front of me. Top three, is that good enough? It's top three. Like there's just two things ahead of me seeking the kingdom of God. So many people 
put God lower than he deserves. And why do people think that way? Because once you start to live it out, sometimes it's kind of hard to seek the kingdom of God. Sometimes there's a famine. Sometimes it means you have to make difficult decisions or say no to something that you really don't want to say no to. But never forget this. And here's my last point. Even though seeking first the kingdom of God is difficult in moments, there is a way harder way to live your life. And that's to not seek first the kingdom of God. As a whole, when you ignore and reject and put God lower than he deserves to be, your life is much more difficult. Like, yes, there are moments where it will be harder to do what God has called you to do, but overall, that is a much more blessed life. That is a much easier existence. It is much harder to be like, nah, I'm good. I'll do my own thing. Because I've watched people walk that road over and over and over and over again and seen the destruction that it causes in life. And so here's what I hope you learn from the life of Jacob as he enters into his final days. Look at Genesis chapter 47. Literally everybody in the chapter is in a famine. But those who chose to honor God have a hope in the midst of the famine. And those who do not, meaning their quality life is like those who do not, did not choose to honor God, like their, their quality of life is awful. The people who chose to honor God, their quality of life is infinitely better than those who chose not to. And it doesn't matter if it's this virus or the next virus or this election or the next election. I promise you that day is coming where you trusting in things other than Lord will be exposed. So here's what I hope you learn from the life of Jacob. God wants good things for you. He doesn't call us to obedience and lead our lives because he's trying to make us suffer. In fact, the truth of life is that God probably wants better things for you than you even want for yourself. The goal then is to recognize and be encouraged by the goodness of God and to do the things that are in front of you that he has called you to do. Amen? Let's pray.